Hi, my name is Craig Thai, and I'm the pastor here at the Outpost Church. We're starting a sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and at our kickoff this past weekend, we began with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, the live recording of that sermon wasn't available. So this is a re-recording of that same message. I hope that it helps enlighten you about the superiority and the sufficiency that is Christ, and it makes you thirst for more as we go through this incredible book of the Bible. We're so excited to have you with us. So my goal here for us is to work through books of the Bible, allowing us to dive deeper into God's Word so that we can better apply it to our lives. And after a lot of prayerful consideration, I've decided for us to begin with the book of Hebrews. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Hebrews, had the following to say. He said, Many listeners today, influenced by a postmodern relativism and preoccupation with self-esteem, will need to be gripped by the biblical vision of the living God, supreme in his majesty and purity as the judge of all, in order to grasp the astonishing good news of the atoning work of Christ, which purges consciousness and grants us access into God's presence in order to experience his grace. And that really is why the outpost exists. We want to be an outpost uninfluenced by postmodern thought, and most certainly helping break the preoccupation with self and self-esteem. We want to focus on the astonishing good news of Christ, the life-changing news of the gospel, which will allow us to be in God's presence so that we may know him better, to worship him better, and then better experience his grace. And we'll be doing this while studying the ESV, the English Standard Version of the text. So a little background on what we're going to be studying. Hebrews is a book with no stated author. In fact, there's actually a lot of disagreement over the authorship of the book. Some say it's Paul, Peter, even Apollos. But Origen, an early church father, says, no one knows. To which Pastor John MacArthur comments, how fitting, since the book's purpose is to exalt Christ. How fitting indeed. What we do know is that it was written after Jesus' ascension, but before the destruction of the Holy Temple in 70 AD. And most scholars assume that it was written somewhere between 65 and 70 AD. And there are three primary groups that this epistle is addressing. The first is Hebrew Christians. These would be Hebrews who had been born again, true believers in Christ, but they were raised as Jews. The second is Hebrews who weren't Christian, but had an intellectual belief in Jesus. These would have been people who intellectually believe and understood who Christ was, but they had not yet made a life-changing profession of faith and had not been born again. And the last group were the Hebrew non-Christians who weren't convinced at all. These would have been the people who weren't convinced either through intellect or faith about any truth of the gospel. And even though most of us aren't Hebrews, I think we can all identify with one of these three groups. I know that I have been in each one of those groups at various stages in my life especially that middle group, the intellectual understanding of uh, that there was a God and he did exist, but not having life-changing, saving faith. And so as we read through Hebrews, part of what we will need to determine is which group the author is speaking to at which time. And that will allow us to get a deeper understanding of the application of this text. So a little more background than we would normally give, but I do think it's critical as we dive into this text. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for giving us your word and sending us your son. Lord, I ask that you open our hearts, you open our minds, you open our ears to what we are going to study today. May we imprint it upon ourselves and our lives to carry it forth everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask you a question. What in your life is enough? Is it your job? Is it your money? Relationships? Lack of relationships? Maybe it's your house or a car or an airplane. And we see this especially in kids and well, also pretty much all adults. If I could only get the next toy or that new car or that promotion, then I will be happier. Then I will be enough. Then my life will be sufficient. And I think we've all felt this way. I did for years. I was chasing promotions and bigger jobs and better titles and more money. Wanting more, especially in America, is a big theme. And it's one that is usually associated to happiness, joy, and that idea of being complete. We actually see this all the time in advertising. If you don't have this product or this car or this body or this life, then you're just not enough. Because advertisements play on the fact that people in them look like they're having a perfect life. And this becomes even more accentuated when we look at social media. There is a job called a social media influencer. You find them on YouTube and Snapchat and TikTok, and their job is to influence. But what is it that they're really influencing? They're influencing the idea that if your life doesn't look like their perfect life, you aren't enough. And I really want us to keep this in mind as we think about the overall theme of the book of Hebrews. And that theme is the superiority and the supremacy of Christ. And we're going to see it throughout the whole book. And these actually, these first three verses really capture the core of that theme well. And this becomes important for us because it will become our foundation for us as Christians. And if we take a look at the global church currently, especially within many of what we would refer to mainline denominations, we see this tendency to bend towards cultural demands, to focus on self-love and self-esteem and even the idea of a personal relationship of Jesus instead of the ultimate superiority of Christ. So having this deep understanding of the supremacy and sufficiency and superiority of Christ is actually going to allow us to worship him and love him better because we will understand him better. And it will change our overall approach to our faith and our Christianity. Because we're not just going to look at Jesus as another nice guy or as one friend of ours once told us that Christianity is just a good philosophy. Because if we think that way, then we're not going to give it the attention in our life that it deserves. Because, and we all know this, we focus our energy on what we love, which makes sense. Because God is love and we are created in the image of God, we are creatures that are built around love. However, the sin and the fall are so real. That's the idea of the concept of total depravity, being dead in our sin. We also all know this. For those of you with kids, you never had to teach them how to lie. It's just something that they knew how to do. And if you did teach them how to lie, you should probably contact me and we can have a different discussion. Love of God, our number one priority. And this really will change everything in our lives. 
because it allows us to see God's glory in everything that we do. It allows us to be joyous in times of distress. And in fact, this letter is a letter of encouragement to Christians in distress, and it provides comfort to them based on the supremacy of Christ. Reminds me of the second half of Nehemiah 8.10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So with all that background and all, all of that, that information to kind of set the stage of what this theme looks like, let's dive right into these three verses. And something I love about the Bible is the directness of it. We live in this world where if you're being direct, it can be seen as aggressive or rude or even uncaring. But Scripture doesn't mince words. And because we treat Scripture as the living Word of God, these words and their directness is very important. So the author jumps right in, which unlike other epistles, which would contain a greeting or authorship here, he just states facts. Verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. A few things come to mind. The first is this verse gives us some insight into why the Old Testament was written. I think sometimes there's this tendency for us to, in our minds, break apart the Bible between the two Testaments, and then by default to spend more time in the New Testament than the Old Testament, because that's where the gospel resides. It's where the stories that we are predominantly familiar with maybe reside. But that's not necessarily a good approach, because as we're going to see throughout this book, these two are linked through God's covenant, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament was written because it was preparation for the Messiah, for Christ. And when we read it through that lens, it actually provides us greater clarity into God's covenant with us. It provides us the background that paves the way for Jesus. And there's a cultural misunderstanding that experiencing God in nature is enough for us. I think about it when we camp. We go up into the mountains away from cell phones and light pollution and I get to look out at the starry-decked heaven, especially at 2 or 3 in the morning when I have to get out of the tent to go use the restroom. And it's, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It, it's awe-inspiring. And while this is amazing, and it does inspire awe and beauty, it really isn't enough. Our senses alone aren't enough. Our experiences alone aren't enough. And we, we do get to experience God's creation through them. But we can't truly experience God through them because we need more. This is where Scripture comes in. We need Scripture to really understand who God is because it is God coming to us, not us coming to God. And so that's why these words God spoke are so important because they provide us with a reminder that God spoke to us through prophets. And prophets were those people that God used to make his word and his presence known to them. And we see them all over the Old Testament. The Jews actually still do refer to the, the part of the Bible that contains the prophetic writings as the Nevi'im. You would find books like Joshua and Hosea and Micah and Nahum, Judges, Kings, Samuel, and so on there. But our author of the letter doesn't leave it there. He says that that God spoke to the prophets, but he doesn't say he just spoke to the prophets. And as Calvin points out in his commentary, the author is going to use contrasts. God spoke through the prophets, then, now he speaks through his son. And this has a, uh, a very important modern day application, especially when you hear people that may have claimed to receive prophecy, especially within heretical religions like Mormonism, whose leader is referred to as the prophet. We have to be wary of anybody claiming prophecy because that isn't how God communicates with us any longer. Because he first spoke to our fathers through prophets, but now he speaks directly to us through his son. Before it was at various times. We see this in Old Testament history. We, 
during all different time periods, God speaks through the prophets, and then he stops. There's actually a 400-year gap between the last prophet and the birth of Jesus. Then he says, however, now it is in these last days. Well, what does that mean? And I think it's important for us to define terms. We know this culturally, especially as things get misdefined and misconstrued. So how much more important would it be with when we're dealing with the word of God? Because there are some terms that we can use that we may think are commonly understood. However, they may be commonly misunderstood or misused. And one of those terms is the last days. It's been misused and misunderstood by many people. In this particular context, for the Jews, it would have meant the time of the Messiah. And we see this term used elsewhere in the epistles. For example, in 1 Peter 1.20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus' coming is the last times. And these contrasts that the author is writing are very important. Because if we're talking about supremacy and superiority, then no one can come after Jesus. No other prophet, no other Messiah, no other anything. So he's comparing the way things were to the way things are now. The old covenant, the new covenant. And he's making it as a decisive statement. Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And God spoke to us by him. Him, Jesus, a real flesh and blood person. And not only that, but the author states what Jesus' portion was. He is the heir of all things, not just some things, but all things. The concept of heirship is incredibly important in Judaism. Firstborn sons were entitled to double portions, and we see that in Deuteronomy 21.17. So Jesus, as the Son of God, has entitlement. He's entitled to all things. Everything that God created or possessed, Jesus is entitled to. And this comment would have struck a chord with the Jews because heirship was a big part of their religious culture. However, it's important to note that Jesus wasn't someone that was created after God. He's been there since before the foundation of the world. And that becomes a key part of the indivisibility of the Trinity. And we see a great example of that in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. Jesus always has been and always will be. The author refers to Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of God's nature, because nobody can see God. Jesus, instead, is the physical image of God, but not just the image. He was fully God in substance. Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul explains it as, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Which brings us into verse 3, which really highlights this idea of supremacy and superiority of Christ. He upholds the universe by the words of his power. And I want us to focus on this idea of him upholding. Because when I was younger, I, I believed in God, but I didn't believe that God had an active part in my life. A lot of it, I kind of likened it to a, a computer game of SimCity. I don't know for those of you that might remember, but there was a computer game called SimCity, and you got this blank piece of land, and you could set up different areas, commercial and residential and industrial, and you could build a fire station and a police station. You would build it all up, and you'd turn the little power switch on, and you would see what would happen. And you could have natural disasters, or the people could fight, or they could run out of things, or whatever, but you just watched kind of as an inactive participant. And I likened God a lot to that. I believe that God created the world, but I definitely didn't believe that he had an active and engaged hand in my life. Similarly, look at Greek mythology 
Atlas. Atlas's punishment was that he had to hold up the earth and the heavens. He was condemned. It was his punishment, which is not a particularly caring or positive worldview of upholding the universe. But of course, we know neither of these approaches are correct, accurate, or biblical. Because not only did God create all things, not only did he create the world through his son, but it is his power that continues to uphold it every single day, every moment. The King James Bible translate that, translates that word as upholding, which means that it's constant. He's fully involved. This isn't an impersonal, uncaring God, but one who is active in not only the creation of the universe, but the continuing of its existence. And this here should be the foundation where our peace and lack of anxiety lies as a Christian. Because if we are faithful believers, then we believe that God is constantly at work. Through his upholding of the universe, it shows that he has an active hand in everything. And unfortunately, sometimes churches limit God's authority only to the, the walls of the church, the dominion of, the, of their authority. But that's not true. Because Jesus is heir to all things. He has supremacy. He reigns over everything. He reigns over the church. He reigns over secular things. He reigns over culture. There is literally nothing outside of Jesus' control. Because there is nothing outside of God's control, which makes him an active participant. He makes the sun rise each day. He breathes air into our lungs at each moment. And then, to cap it off, he so loved us, not just through the upholding of the universe, but he sent his son to die for us. John 3.16, probably one of the most widely memorized verses of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This becomes the deepest love because when we look at something like Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. We are all sinners. We all deserve grand punishment. But through his divine love and mercy and the Holy Spirit bringing us to saving faith in Christ, we've been washed clean of our sin. We are justified before the Lord because Jesus made the purification for our sins. And this is the life-changing message of the gospel. This is why we as Christians can live in peace, without worry, and truly joyous, no matter what life throws at us. But you see, if Christ isn't supreme and isn't sufficient, then this doesn't work at all. We can't truly live without worry and live in peace. Which brings us to the end of verse 3, Jesus' exaltation. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Two quick things to note about this, because they, they really directly tie into this idea of superiority and supremacy of Christ. First, the right hand is, is the seat of power. That's where that term, he's my right hand man, comes from. So there's a statement here about Jesus's power. Also, secondly, the high priest in the temple would have never sat down. There weren't even seats in the tabernacle of the temple, because he would have been too busy with constant sacrifices, trying to get sin cleansed and atoned for for the Jews that were coming to the temple. It was very literally a bloody mess, and it required constant work. But here we see Jesus sitting down, our true high priest, because his full sin-redeeming work is done. And I think it's a really beautiful, active contrast. Jesus upholds the world constantly. He's active in our lives constantly, every single moment. But he also died for our sins once and for all. Could there really be anything more loving and complete? 
At the beginning of this, I talked about the things in life that make us feel enough or complete, that list of finite, tangible things. And then we talked about that overall theme of supremacy and superiority of Christ. As we dig into Hebrews, I really want this to constantly be on our mind. Because for Christ to be our encouragement, for him to be truly supreme, that means that he must matter above all else in our lives. And because of that, because of his superiority and the fact that he holds up the universe, we get to live in peace. We can be free from worry, free from anxiety, because we know he is our good God, doing everything for his glory, which then allows us to live a life worthy of our callings, because we know that we're justified before the Lord. Our sins are washed away through his sacrifice, but only because he is the greatest high priest. No one can come after him because of his ultimate supremacy, sufficiency, and superiority overall. He is the one that is constantly caring for and providing for us. He even knows the hairs on our head. Luke 12, 7. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And friends, This should bring us comfort, peace, joy, and encouragement. God bless.